You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, RRR listeners. I'm Dr Doodle, and I'm even more excited than usual, so hold on to your hats. One of, our, one of the commonest questions I get asked, pretty much I get this at least once a fortnight, is someone rings up or someone comes in and says, what can we do to help our son or daughter or friend overcome their drug problem? And the answer is never simple, to be honest. It's a mix of education, advice about boundaries, support, and then tips to negotiate our excessively complex and grossly underfunded drug support system. So today, we have invited two experts, I love experts, to help us tackle the problem. Debbie Warner is a mother who has lived through this very problem, and, prof- and we also have a professor of addiction medicine, Dan Loveman, who deals with, these, with similar problems, problems like this, on a daily basis. So we welcome Debbie Warner and Prof Dan Loveman in to talk us through this issue. Also joining us is our regular panellist, Dr um, Capri, sorry I'm multitasking here, an all-rounder working in general practice with a special interest in women and fam- women's and families' health. Dr Capri is going to raise an interesting question later in the show. Is it, and I think of this one in terms of sports people all the time, Dr Capri, her question is, is it enough to be a good clinician or should a doctor be a good role model as well? What if they smoke? What if they eat badly? What if they're overweight? Does this influence your choice of doctor and would you take their advice? So... What can I tell you but sit back, take off your shoes, brew up a cuppa, and stay tuned for Radiotherapy on 3RRR. And the Dr. Doctor theme didn't come in, as I'd hoped, but what the heck. I was going to play the Dr. Doctor theme, people, so just sing it in your heads. Doctor, Doctor. Okay, that was probably not a good idea. Dr. Capri, take over. Rescue me. I refuse to sing on air. I Why not? I barely speak cohesively. Hey, wait a second. I heard you do karaoke. <laughs> That's another story. That's for another day. So how are you, Dr. Capri? Yes, I'm well. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what um, our experts have got to say on a really important issue, and I'm hoping that they'll take over most of it so I have to, very little to say. You would have had this problem, though, a bit in general practice, wouldn't you? Yeah, I was speaking to Debbie a bit earlier. I see a lot of it, and I feel very... Um, uh, not very good at dealing with it because it's a huge area and, as you say, underfunded and um, I'm looking forward to hearing um, better ways of managing. Cool. Debbie. Hi. G'day. Thanks for Hi. coming in. That's fine. Did you uh, have any trouble finding us? Was it nice and easy? Yes, very good. Your directions were perfect. Oh, excellent. And Prof Dan. Prof Dan Loveman. How are you, man? Uh, good morning. I've, ha- I've chatted to you on the radio before, so you're an old hand at this. You're an expert. Tell us, Just tell everyone what your job is, because rather than me trying to mumble through and tell everyone. So um, I'm the director of Turning Point, which is uh, a large national treatment research and training centre around the area of addiction and gambling. And uh, obviously we see a lot of issues that are facing the community and, and see thousands of people come through our door and offer treatment and we offer do a lot of training for health professionals across the board to police to a whole range of first responders so we're always trying to identify where the latest issues are and what the best responses are oh, fantastic now we before we get into the drug and alcohol we always start with our favorite little segment called soapbox but i'm going to hit you with my doctor doctor theme music so i can get my bit of paper that's got all the right stuff so uh, bear with me for one second while i get myself organized team You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
feel so much better now. <laughs> and I've got my bit of paper in front of me. So we're going to start off with you know a little bit of catch up, a little bit of news from the um, from the, the health field. Although I've got to say, I you know jumped on. This was my job today because you know we've got this segment. And we've got our two lovely guests who have come in, and we've got Dr. Capri who's doing her segment later after the drug and alcohol. So it was my job to come up with something. And of course, I left it till this morning. And I did a quick search, but I found this Ripper article. It's a it's a bit of an oldie. It's from last year, so it's not quite hot off the press. But I do love these sorts of articles. I love it when, um, you know, these wacky, wacky left of field things. Now, this one's called, it's from a study called A Diamond is Forever, Forever and Other Fairy Tales, The Relationship Between Wedding Expenses and Marriage Duration. Oh, which I just think is such a great thing to study. because, And it's basically two economics professors at Emory University in the United States. And they, and they basically wanted to address this issue of does your spending affect your marriage? Because the, the dream that's been sold in the US, and I think Australia and pretty much the Western world, sure. is the more lavish your preparations for wet, for your marriage, so your engagement ring, your, um, your wedding ceremony, your um, reception, the, you know, in some way the better things are. You know, the myth being that the lavish wedding leads to a fairy tale marriage. And they gave some basic sort of stuff. $50 billion is the wedding industry in the United States a year. And I don't think Australia, you know, Australia would be proportionately pretty much the same. It's a massive thing. And the average spend is around about 30 grand. $30,000. Which is just pretty phenomenal, especially in the United States where you consider they've got higher rates of poverty than we do. And the bridal magazines, you know, sell this whole industry and they have all these recommendations. And the recommendations have grown over the years. And, they, and this study, they also tracked some of these things. It's up to now, the bridal registries pretty much routinely recognise you spend a year preparing for your wedding. And there's pretty much, they have checklists. And the average checklist has about 44 tasks. Dr. Capri, that's pretty typical for us too, wouldn't you think? Don't you reckon most people spend about a year and have about 50 odd things on their checklist? Well, speaking from our peer group experience, I think that would be right. I'm sure we all uh, spend a lot, a lot of time and money um, organising, uh, I don't know about lavish weddings, but certainly weddings that were um, uh, involved pretty dresses, expensive dresses, expensive uh, reception um, venues and good food, good music. So, yes, I think that that, that is the case. I know. So in, our, in our demographics. Some of this was out there. No, Dr. Dr. Capri and I, Capri, I'm going to get rid of the doctor. We went to uni together. So I actually went to your wedding and I'm rapidly, I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to remember it to see, remember how lavish it was. I think it was lavish. No, it, was, wasn't, it wasn't as lavish as the mine average was, one. Mine was Yours lavish. was fairly lavish. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I don't think I paid though. We spent a lot of money on getting a, a yeah. live band. That was, oh, uh, that was oh, good what touch. I spent money on. Good yes. touch. Anyway, so the average spends 30 grand. For a diamond in, um, engagement ring, this is quite interesting too. Um, De Beers, which is some big diamond company in the United States, started this whole thing going supposedly. Prior to World War One, only around about 10% of um, engagement rings contained a diamond. And they started the um, slogan, a diamond is forever, right. back in the late 30s. And uh, they've just built that up over the years, as have a whole lot of other people's. And they now recommend the two-month salary is a small price to pay for something that lasts forever. And two-month salary in Australia would be probably around two grand on, you know, disposable salary. I assume that's what they mean. So people are spending a fortune, and um, and it's a big deal. Okay, so here goes the study. They looked at about three thousand married couples. They did it online using pretty robust methodology. They're professors of economics. They looked at everything. They tried to control for as many things as they could, and and it's no surprise there was no evidence to support that more spending. 
<laughs> um, led to a longer marriage. And there was some evidence to, su- to suggest, so there was mild correlations, that high spending is inversely correlated. So if you spend $20,000, uh, more than $20,000 on your, we- on your wedding ceremony, you have 1.6 times the risk of divorce. And engagement rings that are worth more than 2000 bucks means 1.3 times the risk of divorce. So, yeah. So I'm now, you know, a lot of people say, Steve, why did you get... Oh, I'm, sorry, I'm calling myself by my wrong name. Dr. Doolittle, why did, why did your marriage end? Well, I think it was just because we spent too much too on much the ceremony. Yeah. It wasn't about lack of communication or anything like that. <laughs> it wasn't our fault at all. It was, it was <laughs> our in-laws who spent too much money on our wedding. They, they set us up. Those damn in-laws. Clearly. No, they're thank they're you for the people who spent all the money back then. Um, there was a few things that actually, because they looked at a whole lot of checklists. It was primarily about money, but they had a few other checklists. And uh, so they looked at a few other correlates, and so I'll give you some guesswork. What do you reckon? I'll throw some things. High number of people turn up to your wedding, good or bad predictor? Good, I would have thought. Well, I would say good. Oh. Yeah, slight good. Sl- the more people that turn up, slightly less chance of divorce. It depends on who made up the wedding, who made up the yeah. list. I mean, it's, it's just peripheral, whole lot of peripheral people that your parents wanted Mm. have there but if you've yeah but overall i suppose if you've got a big support group it probably means is that invited or not invited yeah Yeah. (laughs) and obviously depend on the culture what about the indian weddings with you know a thousand people going over a week i still want to go to one of them in fact i want to be part of one one day Um, (laughs) (laughs) what about greater difference in age between the couples i think think probably less yeah less you're onto this, Capri. Yeah. What about greater educational difference between the couples? Ooh, I think more. Uh, got a less. Um, so you, more what? As in, you're more likely to to have a good outcome. Oh no, it's less. More oh. divorce with greater um, educational oh, difference, is that right? but only mild. Um, high income, having a child, high wedding attendance, and honey and oh, going on a honeymoon all slightly decrease the chances. So there's a few little tips for you, everyone, just to get you going on Sunday morning. <laughs> now. What should we do? I reckon we might play a song to get everyone to relax and get everyone in the mood. And uh, then we are going to come back. Is there anything else that we need to announce? Oh, one quick announcement. This one. What's your accent, um, Prof Dan? So I'm from the UK originally. I'm from Liverpool. Good, because I just want to point out to you, you know, we have around about 300,000 babies born in Australia each year. But it's only one of your countrymen that are born this year who has the chance to be our head of state. How good is that? The well, I'll take that on, Steve. Yeah, so, you know, congratulations to that. Who, who had the baby? One of those, the royal family members? Oh, yeah, I heard about that. 300,000 babies in Australia, but only one born this year can be our head of state, oh, and they weren't born yet. Um, come on, people. Three, triple, ah. Oh. Hello everyone, welcome back. You are listening to Radiotherapy on 3 Triple R. It's Sunday morning, of course. I don't know what the weather is out there. Look out the window. I normally try and check these things, but I've had a rushed morning. We've got Dr. Capri on, our trusty um, general practitioner, family medicine expert. We've got Debbie Warner and Dan Lubman. And as I said in the intro, Debbie Warner is a um, mum who's had uh, lots of experience with um, helping people on ice in particular and uh, we've invited debbie and dan who's the uh, director of turning point our biggest drug and alcohol service in australia to come in and talk through some of these issues in particular ice but really relevant to any drug and um, we're going to talk you know a little bit around ice and some of the stuff but the key question we want to address this morning and uh you know i think which is one of the hardest things in the whole lot so we're not so much is this whole issue of how do you help someone else so often when we talk about this on radiotherapy and other places we talk a lot about what you can do and we talk about the drugs and the problems 
and the programs. And we'll touch on that, but I really want the theme today to be that slight angle of what do you do to help someone else. Why don't you get the ball rolling, Dan? To start, given that you know ice has been the thing that's been in the news lately, give us a little rundown. What is ice and why is it such a big problem? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Doolittle. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to say is obviously there's a lot of community concern around ice, and um, I think it's important to understand, I suppose, what's really happening out there. So ice or crystal methamphetamine is part of a broad group of drugs called uh, stimulants, and they've been around for over 100 years. And um, essentially methamphetamine is a much more potent form of the drug that's been around for about 50 years. So a more potent form of amphetamine. A more potent form of amphetamine, that's right. And amphetamine speed. Amphetamine speed. So the right. stimulants are, you know, a class of drugs that, you know, they do what the name suggests. They they give you energy, they um, make you, you increase your mood, they make you be able to fatigue less, they, you know, let you, you don't have to sleep as much, you don't have to eat as much, you have much more energy. So, so what, in the so Second World yeah. War, for example, you know, Pilots were given uh, methamphetamine, you know, to help long over, on long flights to make sure that they could complete their mission. So, and traditionally, truckies are another group that use it not so much for fun but to stay awake. Is that that's correct? Is that's it? right. Yeah. Um, there's a number of industries that obviously who work at night or who or have to stay awake for a long time, where you know drugs like stimulants are used in a functional way to sort of help them with their yeah. job. And they they're in the they're in the arena too because they have a medical use, don't they? Versions of amphetamine are used, for example, to treat attention deficit disorder in kids and, and that's Ritalin essentially isn't it? That's right so you know dexamphetamine which is a, a form of amphetamine as you say is used for the treatment of ADHD so there's a lot of really you know important medical uses for these drugs. Yeah um, so what's happened so what's how does ice differ is it a particular form of methamphetamine? So there's a range of methamphetamine that is available and, you know, the the difference between methamphetamine and amphetamine is amphetamine traditionally was snorted yep. and it was low, low quality, low potency, so, you know, it didn't have, really have as, as much effects as what we see with methamphetamine. Methamphetamine changes the nature of the amphetamine so that it's, it's easier to take. You can smoke it, yep. which means that it gets into your bloodstream much quicker, which means you get a much more potent hit, hit yep. much more potent high and you get all those effects that i said come on much more quickly and so you can inject it as well yeah oh sorry yeah that's right yeah i mean obviously most people don't inject it yeah. but like all drugs if you if you if over time you found that when you use a drug it doesn't have the same effect that one way to get a better effect is to inject it because it comes straight into the body and bypasses the way in which the body metabolizes the drug so it can be used like many other drugs in that way so methamphetamine is essentially a much more potent form of amphetamine and then if we look at i suppose the different types of methamphetamine what we're seeing more of these days is across the board and, and i suppose this relates to why we're seeing increasing concerns in the community is much more more uh, pure forms of the drug. So the, 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 the actual purity of the drug across the board, both uh, the powder form through to the crystalline form, has actually gone up over the last decade. Right. So we're seeing a much stronger, more potent drug. And the other problem I gather is economics. It's got cheaper. Um, it, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, it has got... If you look... At, I suppose the question is, is what you compare with. If, if you look at Australia versus the rest of the world, yep. like everything here, we're being hit. You know, really... You know, so the drugs here are much more expensive than they are anywhere else in the world. Ah. Mm. But 
that's you know, and that's because of our geography, because of our borders, but, you know, because it's much harder, like any commercial business, to get stuff into Australia. Right. So that's good. So they are much more expensive, but as you say, relatively, because of existing markets, because um, people have seen profits in methamphetamine, you know, the amount of methamphetamine uh, available, the purity's gone up, and that relative price has come down. But it's also made locally, isn't it? Isn't yeah. that part of the problem? So the, it's e- easy to make. Well, it's now? interesting because now most of the methamphetamine we see in Australia actually comes from overseas. Right. It actually comes from sort of Asian countries, particularly countries like Burma mm. so a huge amount of drugs comes from overseas there is drugs uh, actually produced in Australia mm. but because of a range of um, I suppose um, measures that the government are taking for example um, getting rid of precursors so drugs that can be used to manufacture methamphetamine drugs like pseudoephedrine which mm. used to be freely available in pharmacies the government's done a lot to get rid of those yeah. so they're less accessible so I suppose yeah, anywhere between 80 to 90 percent of methamphetamine is actually coming in from okay. outside, and so there's a smaller proportion that's, that's actually manufactured here. Mm. That's not to say that that's not an issue. So, yeah. Debbie, um, t- I imagine it must be very hard to talk about your experience, but I know you've got some, you, but you've done this quite a bit. So, um, so as much as you feel comfortable, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Can you tell us a little bit about what's, what your experience of what's happened so far? Well, my son, who was doing really well in life, really, just enjoying life, um, went to a few parties and tried ice and obviously really, really liked it and uses and started to use way too much of it. About how long ago? Um, three years now. Right. Yeah. And, and so what did you notice as a mum? That he was um, awake at night and he was um, starting not to go to work and not go to school and he was... Um, just all over the shop and then the unbeknownst to me that he was using using it um that's that's one of the commonest things i wonder about and i hear people say what did you think was going on early when he started not going to work and not sleeping sort of what sort of things went through your mind do you remember uh well first of all i did ask him and he said he was just taking a few few eckies yeah and he was an ecstasy ecstasy pretty common party drug Yeah. yeah And he was, you know, drinking maybe a little bit too much. So then he, um, yeah, he really just, he didn't really want to talk about it with me because he didn't, I guess it's something that you, as kids, he was um, 19 at the time. So you don't really think you have to talk a lot about their life if they're doing well and going off to work and you don't really want to know a lot about their private life as such. But it wasn't until things started to uh, you know, he started to get a little bit psychotic and started locking himself in his room. About how long into it was that? Uh, about six months. Right. And yeah. what do you mean by psychotic? I mean, I think I know what you yeah. mean, obviously. But. Uh, he could always he thought our house was being um, bugged yep. and he thought that he, there were people after him all the time and he started doing things like um, breaking his phones because he thought people could tap into his phones and breaking his computer, which, he, which was something really important to him because he'd saved all his money to buy it. Yep. And then he totally destroyed it into little tiny bits because he thought people were, could get into his computer. And was that when you sort of started sussing that there was something more serious going on than just, you know, not turning up to work and stuff? Uh, it, well, the first episode was when he wouldn't come out of the room and he started to, yeah, worry about what was happening um, and he started to become really paranoid and I actually had to call an ambulance. 
Right, yeah. yeah. yeah and did you get admitted to hospital that time? Uh, no. Right. <laughs> no, it took, a, it took a, a while before they would admit him, and it took a pretty um, annoyed mother. Yeah, you know what? I was just going to say, too, because that, you know, smile that you and, and sort of nervous laugh you just gave is just completely typical of a lot of people in their early phases of ex- trying to experience getting their family member help. They mm-hmm. get incredibly frustrated with our systems, because for which I think we'll probably get onto that a little bit later about what can we do to fix our systems, but that was your experience, wasn't it? It was just incredibly hard to get the appropriate help early on yes yes and we had a family of um of, um his his siblings are very very close to him and um wanted to help him as much as they could and um we found it very frustrating yep can i, I just want to touch on a slight side issue for a second because yes. i think listeners will be wondering this because i was wondering and i asked you beforehand before we came into the show obviously you're happy to talk under your real name today yes. because you've talked about this quite publicly and your son who is we'll get to this but he's currently in rehab is is quite public and aware of all this so you you're i just want to touch on yes. this issue because people be out there thinking goodness you know because it is a big call getting up there and talking about um you know a very personal difficult family issue like this yes has that been a problem for you at oh at first um i first when i realized we had a problem and i looked for sourced help for myself and went to a support group i found the support group there was one in my suburb but i made sure i went to the one the furthest away from my suburb because i didn't want anybody in my community to know what was happening in our family i'm on many committees my, my work so i didn't want anyone to know and how did you change how did you what was it like you know what was the pathway that got you to feeling it was important to be more public I went and got some help for myself yep. and got a um, very um, a good psychologist to talk to and she taught me how important it was to be honest and open within our family and to have real conversations around around this and to be um, so we practiced that that for uh, it took us a good year to of practice to actually then um, understand in our family how important it was for us to be able to communicate and be honest with each other so that then we could teach Matthew to be to do that as well. And you've obviously um um you've obviously what am I trying to say, as well as providing lots of support to Matthew, you've obviously taken on the task and role of speaking publicly to try and help others as well. Yes, because when I started going to that support group I I realised that there was I wasn't I was one of many many families that were going through exactly the same thing. What I before we we came in earlier, I spoke to Debbie and and she's talking about um, having to be the real advocate for her son. Where uh, a lot of advice is that the, the the affected individual needs to be ready to to take on board to want to change it's got it's up to them but debbie's saying that really it's actually up to the people who care and can actually do it on their behalf until they're ready to take it on board themselves and i think that's really powerful because a lot of messages out there are that the person has to be ready to change that may take a very long time and in the meantime they might actually you know run into far more trouble so you know i applaud what you've done for your son and and it's great that we can hear about it yeah, I just want to echo those comments. And, and just, I mean, I think one of the thing that 
Debbie's touched on a lot is that you know we think about alcohol drug problems they're the most stigmatized issues in our community so you know um, people coming out publicly and talking about it you know people don't do that in our in the alcohol mm. drug space I mean people didn't used to do it in the mental health space you know if people had mental health problems mm. nobody used to say anything but yep. now it's actually trendy to have a mental yeah. health well, problem Beyond Blue changed that they yeah. exactly the so and that's because they address the myths Mm. You know, around the issues, and, and there's a lot of myths, and there's a lot of misinformation around oh, alcohol and drugs. Absolutely. And I think one of the challenges is is our community's caught in a bit of a bind. So governments feel they have to act tough. So what they have is very strong messages, which actually actually demonise people who use drugs, and, and often demonise their families, and make and increase the stigma. Mm. And so that makes getting help much much harder. And you know, you know, one of the issues is is you know less than. You know, five to ten percent of people with alcohol and drug problems get it, go and see a health, seek any sort of professional help. Mm. Yeah. And that's because of the, the, the nature of stigma and shame mm. in the community around these issues, and the fact that we don't have really great champions like Debbie out there demystifying the issues relating to alcohol and drugs and talking about the real issues about what you actually do, mm. what, you know, messages of hope about things can change because all we do see is these messages of, you know, really dark places and the idea that nobody ever gets any better. Mm. And that's, that's as far from the truth as it is. Mm. So, Debbie, take us back then to... Um, you're up to basically he had his first ever, um, you know, what sounded like a psychotic episode, got paranoid, thought people were after him, which is a um, relatively common side effect of um, methamphetamine. So what happened after that? He he did realise that he had a problem, and he real he used to say to me a few quite a lot. Do you think I want to be like this? But he just but he liked the drug too much, so he was always doing this balancing act of whether he did or didn't want to stop, and then didn't really think he could. So um, we continued to um, when he had the psychotic episodes to take him to hospital. He did go into a psychiatric ward over the, over one year um, many times. Yep. Um, but he would then and great workers, everybody there would be very, very helpful for him but then he would be virtually, because at that point he wouldn't, wasn't living with us because we got to the point where we couldn't live with that behaviour. So he was virtually homeless so he was living in a park so he b- would be released from the psychiatric ward back to the park so he was in that cycle of um on ice get psychotic get into hospital stop and ice get treated psychotic symptoms go away discharged into back to the same situation that l- leads him to all well, that puts him in a situation where he goes back to using ice again because there was yes. no ability to address that problem or he wasn't in a position where he could address it yeah, yeah, that was right. And and as a family, we um, made sure that we stayed um, in connected with him, but made sure that we weren't, um, I guess, rescuing him out of the situation. We were trying to support him as best we could, but we did find it very difficult. Um, I mean, it was every time he would say, yes, I want to go and get help, he would go and then have to get onto a waiting list. What were the yeah. pro- approximate waiting lists? I'm going to throw to you in a second, Dan. What were the approximate waiting lists like? Um, he waited for six months to get into Odyssey House and stayed, but he, did, he went and stayed for a day, but his anxiety just took over and he actually discharged himself after a day. But then he wanted to go back, but then he had to go back onto the waiting list again. So, I mean, at WA, I mean, it, 
I mean, it's not an uncommon experience, and it's, it's awful, so you know, awful. to hear yeah, wow. sort of, you know, ha- how devastating that is for a family to mm. sort of have to cope with and deal with, and in fact, feel like you, know, you have to drive the system to get to get responses for you. Yeah. I mean, w- what are you? What are your feelings of you know, w- in, in terms of what helped you get the help you needed? I mean, what, what are the things that families need to think about in terms of making sure they get the, the, the right help? I think the first thing is to plug into support for themselves. So I um, plugged into family drug support, where, and since I went to that that first meeting, you know, miles from where I lived, I now have started to um, facilitate groups because I just know mm-hmm. how important it is because this is really complex. Drug taking is very complex. It's not something that you just fix overnight. So it's something that it's ongoing. So it's really important that the family stays um, plugged in. And, and I'm just interested in the idea of waiting lists to get the kind of help that clearly makes a difference. I have uh, a relative who used to work at... Um, Oh, what's the place up at Byron Bay called? Doesn't matter. Oh, and the same, yeah. yeah, anyway. Because it's, um, a, it's the same it's, problem everywhere. That's yeah, why I say it doesn't you know, matter. It's $140,000 for a month of detox and rehab. And the short version, which me. is another place which you can get into, with, if you want to bypass the waiting list, it costs you $15,000. So, And that means you can get in straight away. And Debbie actually is aware of these programs. I mean... It just seems like the obstacles to getting good help. Um, I mean, one, who can afford that anyway? But two, just the waiting lists of six months or whatever to get good help. Yeah. Can we? Can, can we? Oh, do you want to jump onto that one now, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's really important that you guys, you know, are talking about this today on the radio because I think the more we have a conversation about this, the more we demystify it, the more we talk about what a big issue—not just ice, but alcohol and drugs—are in mm. our community. I mean, it's one of the you know, it costs the community an enormous amount of drug, an enormous amount of money, and um, we, we don't talk about it. We we have a very moralising way of looking at alcohol and drugs. We tend to blame the individual or the family. Mm. Because of that, there's no political capital in investing in alcohol and drug services. Because at the end of the day, if politicians need to think about where to put money, there's, it's much better to put money into a kids' hospital than it is in funding, you know, those druggies. Mm. You know? So why would you invest in that? And so that that means that there's a chronic underinvestment in treatment services for mm. alcohol and drugs mm. in Australia. And, you know, there's a, an enormous amount of money that goes into addressing the alcohol and drug problem in Australia, but that's all going into the police, into customs, Wrong into place. prisons. Very small percentage yeah. going to treatment. Mm. And at the end of the day, because the community aren't well-versed on these issues, they don't advocate it, they don't push it, they don't let their politician know, you know, that means that the political will isn't there really to invest in it. True. And that's where we, you know, the, the issues that Debbie's raising today, are, you know, that's where the, 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 the you know, it, it comes to the family and, and to the, you know, the community and the struggling by themselves. Absolutely. I think, though, that... Um, that the community don't really understand, and I didn't understand this, that that during Matthew's really tough times, he was costing the community a lot more because mm. he was having an ambulance caught out every week. He was having he was in the um, he was in the hospital having um, you know in the areas in emergency a lot. He taking up a lot of time there. Right. He was in um, the psychiatric wards getting. Um, and taking up a lot of time there, there, and so really, um, 
if it if it had to be more appropriate um if he was able, at, at that time he needed more than just uh than counseling outpatient counseling he needed it was very he, he was aware he needed inpatient help so if it had been available to him he wouldn't have been costing the community so much money we're talking about the issue of how do you help someone who's got a drug or addiction problem in particular ice what can you do to support them and we've got debbie warner in here who's a mum who's gone through this experience and prof dan lubman who's the director of turning point one of australia's biggest drug and alcohol services debbie can i take you back to your story again? yes because i think that's so important for people to hear that um so we're up to the point now where he's had a number of admissions over a year um he's essentially homeless he's um He's distanced himself from those who are around him. He keeps getting better when he goes into hospital, but then gets out of hospital, goes back onto the ice. He's had one experience at Odyssey House where he freaked out after a day, discharged himself, and then tried to get back in but had to go back on the six-month waiting list. So what happened next? He um, he just... Uh, it, it was a full year of him doing that, and then um, at the beginning of this year... we we. We kept we ap- we kept the contact as much as we could with him, um, and then he um, at the beginning of the year he said I really want to do something about this again, and so we um, he rang Sadaka, which is our area for intake, and they said look he's this the waiting lists are w- really really large, so don't even think you're going anywhere until the end of the year, and so then. Um, we, I had looked into a whole lot of other programs and I said, look, there is a program in Thailand. Would you like to do that one? Now, that's and hit the media a bit lately. Yeah. I've seen it on a few shows and I've read a few articles about people going overseas. Of course, medical tourism, people going overseas to get their teeth done, to get operations done, to surrogate babies, everything is, is huge. And Thailand's one of the most popular places with some of the highest medical standards in the world. So what, what, what did you, how did you go about, you know, figuring out, you know, because I know the first thing that would have gone through my mind is what if he goes over there and uses where they've got you know incredibly harsh penalties for people involved in the drug in- industry. Mm-hmm. So what, what? How did you? How did you get that step to go into um, rehab in Thailand? Uh, well, I figured anything out of the park was going to be a, a step up. Yeah, and good point. The um, and also I looked into Dara Thailand and it was run um, by um, a UK um, specialist. Um, addiction doctors and I looked into their backgrounds and I did a lot of research before I went and um, then and rang their intake um, counsellor and spoke to her many times and then what I noticed was then Matthew was talking to her over a period of a month and he was talking to her every week and what I liked was that she would talk to me as well because what I found in Australia was that that for some unknown reason I wasn't even though Matthew would give permission I would I wasn't ex- I wasn't um, included. included and what I found the first thing I found was that they were really including us yep. in every step of the way so he's, and he's there now yeah yeah he's still there how long has he been there now four months how's it going yeah he's he's doing amazingly well he's got an, a, a, a great program he's um, he's doing um, he has his own counselor and that counselor also emails us every week and um, we have Skype counseling sessions every week. And you've, um, and you've been over there yourself, haven't you? I, I went over for a week because people were asking me a lot of questions about it and I felt that I needed to know more. So I went over for a week and, and um, while I was there I did some family counselling sessions with Matthew and sat in, in some the group therapy 
and uh, and things that I just have never been able to be included in in Australia. Do you mind? Feel free to say yes. Private. How much? Do you mind saying how it's much? It's it ten thousand a month. Right. But they're very negotiating, and then the longer you stay, the cheaper it gets. Cheaper standards, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. And every year you get a free week to go back because they're really interested mm. in keeping um, in making sure that it's um, continual. Um, what I what I was hearing before is that you're saying that it's in Australia or your experience, and don't let me put words into your mouth, but that you felt more like you were part of the problem, but not allowed to be part of the solution. Is that how you felt here? Um, I not not so much, but I felt that um, I wasn't. Uh, I just felt that people weren't weren't in, didn't know how to include us. Mm. They just didn't right. know what to do. They didn't know how to include us. They didn't like. And when I, I, I really didn't know what we wanted either. But I, what I found was that um, Matthew would get discharged from the psychiatric um, ward without me being contacted. Right. And because he was at that stage twenty, but um, but he was he was clearly not well. So I felt that I was like a care more. I was more like his part of like a carer in a way. And it wasn't that he wasn't accepting of. We, we we were to, we were a close family, so that that's what I found difficult, and that's what I found so useful over the last four months is that we've been so included. That's great. great. So Dan, what do you reckon? You know, what are we doing wrong in Australia that people have to go over there? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think you know, hearing Debbie's story, I mean, re- really sort of highlights a number of issues that we have, and, and one of the issues you know that I suppose that I just want to raise is that, you know, dealing with alcohol and drugs is everybody's responsibility. Mm. You know, it's not just, you know, the person suffering with a drug or their family or the alcohol and drug service. It's actually the the whole of community. It's the whole of government. And one of the, one of the challenges is, is because you know, as I said before, there's, there's sort of this sort of moralising around alcohol and drugs, a lack of investment in alcohol and drugs. It means... I don't know if you guys want to talk about this as well, but you know, in our training, when you when you train as a medical prof- professional, even if you don't want to train in addiction, you get very limited exposure yeah. to something that is incredibly common. Yeah. So that means when you're going into the emergency department, and that's just not in terms of medical, that's nursing, that's psychology, that's mm-hmm. social work. So if you're going anywhere in the health, if, you, if you're going into ED, if you're going into mental health, if you're going into different parts of the hospital, if you're going to see your general practitioner... There's virtually no training. Yeah. And so, therefore, people in the medical, nursing, allied health professionals get most of their information the way the rest of the community gets the information from shows like this and, yeah. and tabloid Google. media and Google. Yeah. And, and you know, reading up about something, as you know, is, is helpful, but... You know, obviously, if the prevailing view is that it's um, you know, it's, it's somebody's fault, and many people in the health, you know, profession feel frustrated that they don't know what to do. Mm. They feel very frightened. They, they you know, the, as the community does, they blame the individual. That means that the experience for the individual and the family is incredibly. Rejecting. Mm. Can I just talk, because we have to f- finish this segment. It's been fantastic, it's but we have to finish it. I know it is a shame. I want to think, I want to get your tips on, you know, what the one or two things that you want to tell each of you, Dan and Debbie, that you want to tell families out there where they should start. If they're starting to suspect, you know, who should they ring? What's the, like, what, just to get people on, on the track? Because we're hearing this is a lot about self education, getting support for yourself, being patient. 
working through um, the issues slowly, methodically, looking at all sorts of options, but we're starting points. Do you want to start the ball rolling, Debbie? What do you think, if you tell people, what are the you know, your number one or two or three sort of tips? What do you think? Uh, well, it's really important to get... Um, in, on, into a service like Family Drug Support or, or um, somewhere where they're going to be talking with other families and that are going through very similar circumstances so they're not, they, they can understand that where they can get their own support. Yep. And so own some, support, yep. And learn and, and, and do some um, educational programs around yes. learning how to deal with somebody in your family that's got, got problems. Yeah, oh, that's what I... So that's my education. number one too. Self, yeah. You've got to consider... You've got to become an expert in the problem. Yes. Yep. Dan, yeah. what do you think? So I think all those things you raise are really important. I mean, I think get informed. So, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to get the facts. And, you know, we're fortunate sort of here in Victoria that there's a lot of resources that are available. Uh, the government run has just launched a brand new ICE advice line, which is one eight hundred four two three two three eight. We'll put that on the Facebook page after this Radiotherapy on Triple R. Yep. Um, they also run a, a, a service that we run called Direct Line, one eight hundred eight 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 two three six, which is about any alcohol and drugs. Yeah, and I've used that many times. Anyone can ring that family, doctor, anyone. clinician, anyone. You ring up and you say, "This is the drug. This is the sort of help I need or my family member needs," mm-hmm. and they talk you through it. That's right. Free confidential advice, twenty four seven. So get the information. Second thing, get support for yourself. So make sure that you're well supported so that you know how to help somebody else because you can't help anybody else if you're feeling tired and fatigued and and feeling like you're alone. So get the support you need. The other critical message is that despite the negativity, Mm. treatment actually works. Mm. Treatment actually works, although most people in the community don't believe it works Mm. because we don't ever see any visible evidence of people who recover. Things like heart disease, diabetes, the treatment outcomes are uh, fantastic. People have the wrong impression. And in fact, one of the we just did a big national study for the Commonwealth looking at people's pathways to the treatment system and actually methamphetamine was one of the drugs where people had the best outcomes so treatment does actually work and so the important thing is to get the right contacts to get the right support and to seek out what is available in your local community and be confident that over you know that there's a range of different options that you can explore explore and that you know if we stick with them they will get there okay we're going to finish up this segment um thank you so much debbie warner who for sharing your experiences it's been amazing listening to it i really i think we all appreciate your honesty and your ability to come and and willingness to come and talk about these things thanks for having me you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia I also want to thank the person um, who uh, put a nice message on Facebook page about the trouble they'd had about their kid at school, just pointing out that schools also have this real issue whereby they tend to treat the problems in an expulsion way rather than a pastoral care support way. Mm. Unfortunately, we haven't got time to go into more details on that segment, um, but we're going to revisit it in future weeks and talk more about this because it's such a huge problem in the community. Hey, Capri, you've, you've got a topic that, you know, just my interest. I love this topic because I hear it talked about with sports people all the time. They've got to be role models. And I wonder about doctors too because I know a few doctors and nurses in particular and they like to have a smoke and they like to do the odd naughty thing. Um, Tell us. Well, 
Initially, I, th- I thought that uh, it was a pretty easy answer to the question that um, the message is more important than the messenger, that uh, a good, uh, good health and promoting that um, stands alone. But the more I scratched at that surface and the more people I gently polled during the week, I found that most people actually do feel that, uh, the, that the person giving you good health advice needs to be visibly healthy um, and that people have more confidence in the person if they're promoting something and they look to be practicing what they preach. I was just getting the giggles because I know one of our mutual friends who's um, works in the hair industry and he's yeah. fantastic. Um, and he's like one of the Australia's leaders in hair loss. He's got the thickest head of hair. Yeah. I don't know if people would go to him if he was half bald. bald. Anyway, I agree. I'm interrupting you already, Capri. I go agree, on. but we are service providers. I mean, we're, we're providing uh, advice about good health and I mean, you're not going to go to a dentist with bad teeth. You're not going to go to a lactation consultant who's bottle feeding their baby. You know, so yeah. image actually is important. Yeah, it's yeah. not as important, I don't think, because I think, you know... A good, the, um, a good clinician who is very good at what they do um, will always trump someone who looks good. But I think when you're promoting the health message of healthy weight, healthy living for preventative health purposes, it is a better look if you look to be practicing. Well, it's an, an interesting one because I've been, you know, canned a number of times over the years because it might have happened on occasions that I might have had one of those. What do they call them? Cigarettes? Yeah. Those evil cigarettes under the audio. And so I've been canned many times <laughs> um, as I struggle with my. Smoke. I'm pretty good. I'm good these days, I should tell you people. But um, in the in the old days, I used to get canned a lot. People saying, how can you smoke? You're a doctor, you know. And my standard, somewhat cynical answer was, people are paying for my scientific knowledge, not my personal um, advice. And... Uh, but the reality is, of course, it's very hard to deliver a no-smoking message if people see you smoking. Yeah, it's hard for the for the community to have faith in the um, doctor who gets pissed at the local fate, uh, who's seen buying cigarettes at the you know service station. I think I think we do have an image to uphold, but. The message clearly is the most important part, but I think that we should endeavour to sort of appear healthy <clears throat> as general, as as primary care providers. Just one last thing, and also it depends on what what sort of doctor you are. As a GP, sure. I think that I need to be looking healthy, but you know I think most people would prefer their surgeon to have a steady hand and good skills rather than a perfect BMI. So I think it also depends on you know what what uh, message you're peddling as to what's expected of you as far as the way you. Look I mean, I think it's a really interesting discussion, and I think you know it's, it, it's a question of behaviour, but it's also a question of attitudes. And certainly, if you look at the scientific literature, um, for example, if you look at the issue of help seeking, and to, you know, linking to the segment we had before about what you might do as a health practitioner in terms of giving advice to somebody else about seeking help, research shows that what you do yourself impacts on the advice you give to your patients so you know it's really important you know to be aware of what what you do or what you would do and so if you're telling you know if you're not likely to go and seek help for an underlying mental health or alcohol drug issue or another issue, then it's very unlikely that you're going to give that advice to somebody who comes to see you. Yeah, there's actually some studies being done that um, unhealthy um, doctors are less likely to opportunistically address those problems with their patients. So, for example, um, there was some study done in Canada or something where um, uh, 90... 
3% of uh, doctors only um, diagnose obesity in their patients if they think that their patient's BMI is more than their own and that uh, they won't that that uh, they don't actually address smoking or weight or diet uh, if they themselves don't practice healthy uh, healthy behaviors but on the other hand of course you know if we you know doctors nurses they're humans and so they're going to suffer yes, the same problems their community suffers and of course you certainly don't want to you know chop them out of any loop just because they are real people just like the real people they see as patients but if it compromises care yeah i mean i think the critical point there steve is is the issue of you know being aware of what your vices or other issues are and being honest about it yep. and yes. being able to to sort of explore that because you can use that in a really positive Good way point. Good into point. the interaction i mean the classic you know classic joke here is you know you only have an alcohol problem you know if you drink more than your doctor and yes. um and certainly we know that you know alcohol is very poorly detected yes. amongst health professionals and and that and often it is because you know there's a you know, people don't really know what the harms are they justify their own behaviors and because of that they don't give health advice yeah oh look i squeezed you short on that segment That's capri okay. i'm a little bit sorry but we're having so much fun on the previous segment it's time for our goodbyes and thank yous firstly debbie um thanks so much for coming in today and talking yeah. with us about your experiences the information you gave was amazing so uh you know thank you Thank you. And I hope everything continues to go well for Matthew. Yeah, and uh, and, I, and I think, you know, we'd love to get you in the studio again um, down the track to see how everything is going and yes. get your opinions, if that's okay. Yep. And uh, Prof Dan Lubman, Director of Turning Point. Thanks, man, for coming in. It's good to see you again. Always a pleasure. We're going to get you again too. And Capri, when do we go and karaoke singing again? We talked about <laughs> that at the start of the show. We've got to go. Stop we it. should do it on air. We should do a whole hour of the two of us singing. Hey, uh, no one really wants that to hear that. That would be scary. Know. Yes. Three tri- Radio Therapy on Three Triple is our Facebook page. We're going to hand you over to the to the scientists on Einstein and Gogo, who are the greatest scientists in the living world and in living memory. Um, and we love. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.